Welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutille. I will start this podcast with a simple question. Is it fair to judge the past in light of the present? In other words, can one criticize the actions of another generation by the ethics and knowledge of today? I would argue that this practice certainly has its place, but that it also has limitations, and that when it's carried to an extreme, can gravely distort history. Some people call it presentism, which is defined as, and I quote, an attitude towards the past dominated by present-day attitudes and experiences, unquote. This certainly is a topical subject as historical figures ranging from Mahatma Gandhi, Winston Churchill, George Washington, and at home, Johnny MacDonald are reevaluated. It is argued that the monuments to these figures are insults to today's sensitivities. Others argue, on the other hand, that people must be judged by the standards of their day. Donald B. Smith, a retired historian from the University of Calgary, has been thinking about this question for a long time. He's a pioneer figure in the writing of Canada's Indigenous past, and his new book, Seen But Not Seen, Influential Canadians and the First Nations from 1840s to Today, is published by the University of Toronto Press. We reached him today at home in Calgary. Don Smith, welcome to the Champlain Society podcast. Thank you, Patrice. Great to be a participant. Don, you're the witness to yesterday for this episode. Take me to the University of Toronto in the first half of September 1939. What's happening? Well, a big conference was held at the U of T with Yale University. It was a conference on the North American Indian today. And that might have been the moment when things started to move. For the first time, Indigenous representatives were participants as well as non-Indigenous. It was a real breakthrough that seemed to be moving very well towards a new perception of First Nations and, and all Indigenous people. Unfortunately, though, the conference began... Well, yes, say it. <laughs> Germany invaded Poland. But at the beginning of the conference, Canada was not in the war. At the end, it was. Can you imagine? World War II began. So this eclipsed everything. And so there's no progress uh, in, in, in terms of better indigenous relations and whatnot for, well, certainly, what did we say, half a century. But um, it could have begun. That's a hypothetical, but it, it, it didn't because the war ellipsed. But it, it was an important event, and, and I, I'm grateful to you for bringing it to life. Well, it was. And um, it, it, there's something else in that, Patrice. I, I, can't, I can't resist. Um, the conference was held at Hart House at the University of Toronto. Uh, and Royal Ontario Museum. Uh, the rule then was that Harthouse was only for males. And so I'm bringing this in just to introduce you to a different time period and a different set of attitudes. The female delegates, there were about, uh, I think about 80 uh, delegates to the conference, 10 female. They could not, the meals were held at Harthouse, they could not eat with the other delegates. <laughs> that shows you different times, uh, gender relations. Eh? So everything Get back to your uh, question about presentism. Um, no, of course, I, I don't. I, I think it's a kiss of death for history because we must try. We do not always succeed, let's be honest. But we must try and put ourselves in the frame of mind of that era and judge it by the standards of the day. And these people were not <laughs> – it was not the same as today, of course, and the people were not the same. But we must try and understand their outlook. And not my, my idea – and here's the punchline, really – my idea in the book was not to condemn, it was not to praise, it was to try and understand, 
That's what the whole book, that's the thrust of the book. So your question about presentism, no, I am not. <laughs> I'm very much against it. But I'm realistic. We can't escape it. We try it, but we must try. That's all I say. Stepping back, Don, how would you describe the arc of awareness between Canadian governments and Indigenous people? Well, the arc of awareness wasn't any arc because in the mid-19th century, it was one perspective, that is the viewpoint of, of the majority society. The exciting part is that the changes start to come, but not for a long time. Really, the real moment of the late 60s, early 70s, that's when, in my opinion, that's my interpretation, things start to move. And then in the 80s, more progression than the 90s, with the human rights, our Charter, Charter of Rights, 1982, all kinds of developments like this, the end of colonialism. There are all kinds of factors participating in this. And new information, this was ridiculous, this treatment of uh, Indigenous peoples inferior. Uh, all kinds of things come together. I'd say the, the conjoncture, I think is the word you use in French, is about 1970. That's why I started my epilogue then, and the covered relates to that moment. Was it different, Don? Was it different for the Canadian people? I mean, my first question was about governments, and you're saying that it was pretty well uh, a negative perspective on Indigenous people until the late 1960s and 1970s. Was it different for the Canadian people? And I mean the majority of Canadian people. No, I think I'd say that uh, it's really apathy and ignorance. That's basically it. The, the whole perception of who is Indigenous also has changed greatly. In the in, right up until the 1970s, 80s, uh, an Indigenous person, that was a status Indian. That was 1% of the population. Now, we've had a whole revision of all this thought. And, and uh, anyways, now it's, it's much, much greater. So it's significant, significant, whereas 1% and early days of confederation that before the west came in that was pretty minor pretty modest but now much more significant population figures and also our activities in in their territories where they're the majority is is in the north and, and west and the fact there aren't we're new new perceptions new ideas the law the first nations themselves let's get this right they're the ones that get the credit because they fought back they did not roll over and play dead they kept at it the culminating moment is 1969 when uh, prime minister trudeau uh, and jean chrétien's minister of indian affairs present what's called the white paper that's a position paper for discussions and the white paper proposed the elimination of Indian status and Indian rights and whatnot, the culmination of a policy that began with Confederation and even before Confederation. That white paper was resoundingly rejected by the First Nations right across the country. And the moment my cover, I've got this wonderful moment. Yes, you do. And it's called Seen But Not Seen. And there is uh, Pierre Trudeau and Jean Chrétien talking amongst themselves. And then in front of them is Walter Dieter, president of the Native Brotherhood. And oh my gosh, is it, it was just. It conveys the, the title of your book. It, it really, they, the, Trudeau and Chrétien are talking to each other. Dieter is sitting in front of them uh, and, and he's staring at them, but they're not looking at him at all. Not at all. And Dieter has mortgaged his house to help the campaign. Uh, he just, he gave everything to it. Um, and in short, it's, it's a great moment. And I wish I could claim credit for that picture, you know, Patrice, but let's be honest, <laughs> I can't. It was my editor, Len Husband. He got it in two minutes off the web. <laughs> let's talk about your book. You, you, your chapters are essentially biographical. How did you select the people you discuss in this book? 
Well, I must explain why biography, first of all, because that's, I, you know, I pushed to the, to the wall and I had to define myself as a biographer or an historian. I'd say I'm probably a biographer. So that's an attraction for me. And I loved uh, human stories. And so I, uh, these people I knew I could do. Um, there's one big regret. There was one person I wanted to do and couldn't, and that was Edison Ryerson. He was in the 1840s and 1850s and whatnot. Uh, but I couldn't do him because there's not enough uh, for the early period there is, but not from the 1840s on. He became head of the Ontario school system. There wasn't any possibility of keeping that going, his interest. So uh, he's out, but others... Let's start with the, the your first chapter, the great Satan himself, John A. MacDonald, <laughs> who today stands accused of genocide, attempted genocide, cultural genocide, and white supremacy. How do you interpret John A. MacDonald in scene but unseen. What's what's his perspective on the indigenous people? Well, I try to be fair to all sides. And again, I'm trying to understand. Um, he came up in Canada, an immigrant, age five, in Glasgow, and grew up in a, on Upper Canada, which was settler, settler colony, two generations before, overwhelming native majority, very tiny number in his boyhood. He didn't know First Nations people. He really, truly didn't. But he that he, he's not you can't stereotype him. You can't sort of put him in a box. He, one of his first trials, it was a murder trial with a a Tyandanega, a Tyandanega Mohawk had been accused of murder and he defended him and did it very, very skillfully. And he only the chap got, got off fairly lightly according to the the other side. Uh, in any case, he did have an openness, but he's totally conventional in his outlook. He doesn't know First Nations people. Uh, he had some acquaintances, but he basically was divorced from the understanding of the culture and the society and uh, an appreciation of its history. He's like everyone else. But I would say that in in Central and Eastern Canada, his policies were, were actually much better than those of his liberal opponents. And the West, uh, he's not good. I mean, I can't hide that. Um, and to explain that, I must say that he had no he had no anticipation that Canada would become uh, have this huge, become 10 times greater than when he first came into office in 1867. That was a surprise. And end up with this huge native majority in the West. Uh, he did. He handled the file poorly in, in the prairies. Um, live in the prairies, I can tell you that. I can't I can't really say much positive about that side. But in central and eastern Canada, much better record. Because his outlook was he wanted the First Nations. He's, he's, this is one perspective, right? You become part of us, that's it. It's an assimilationist vision. Uh, yes. Now now we'd say cultural genocide, or many of us would. That's a bit strong for me, but I can I can accept it. I can see why people use that phrase. Because he wanted the First Nations to become the males because that's the day female rights pretty 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 poor. Uh, but he wanted the males who owned property, First Nations people, the status Indians who had property, to have the vote. And in fact, he introduced legislation which gave the franchise or vote to those First Nations. Uh, males propertyed with some property, they could vote without losing their Indian status. This is revolutionary. I mean, it's like, so in McDonald's, you can't just command them with all six guns firing. There are there's things that even from the day which were quite uh, positive. And the, the granting of the franchise was one. And for that, he was applauded by a number of First Nations people and condemned by others. So it's it's like there's no set answer here. Those that uh, accepted it, wanted the vote, and those that did not were just 
many of the Six Nations are Iroquois people who felt they were allies of the British Crown. They didn't have to become citizens because they already were. They were, they were excuse me, they already had their own nationality, their own sovereignty. So it's, 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 it's not simple. That's all I say. Complexity is the order of the day. Um, Duncan Campbell Scott, the poet and also a bureaucrat, you dedicate a chapter to him. How do you see Duncan Campbell Scott? I think Duncan Campbell Scott is a quintessential bureaucrat. He, he's a civil servant. I mean, he just he goes by the rule book. He's and he's very draconian. He's he's a he's a, he's a representative of his age. Um, I think he was particularly severe. Um, I I don't really. I tried to be fair though. You can say this. He was an efficient civil servant. But again, his views on the indigenous people was was one where, again, there's no tolerance. It was one of assimilation and and. Uh, a driving assimilation. He's the policy, though, the policy of the liberals and the conservatives. He's implementing it. And um, in, in a very, well, the budget is so limited. He's, he's penny pincher and he knows, knows real sympathy or whatnot. He, he, he's not really empathetic with the First Nations at all. Or the, it, it's just, it, he's, by our staff, looking back, it was a horrible choice, I mean, honestly. But we have to look at the times, and, and Indian Affairs was a very minor department. It, it really was. And, and, and he's he's doing it efficiently. The ministers, live, leave, they don't really oversee him at all. He's on his own. And he's a little dictator. There's no question of it. I mean, I can't defend him. I, I Oh, no, sorry. <laughs> I don't have to remember. That was my, my beginning. I, I try to understand him. He's a product of his times. And gosh, it, it's not great. It really isn't. But we can't do anything about we can't but we can understand why he was like that he didn't know first nations people he had no sympathy with them he uh, was he really his concern was his arts and arts and letters his he was a poet a writer he was a very good musician and those were those were his his interests this was a job do you see progress dawn as the generations succeed each other for instance you devote many pages to emily carr the artist how did she come to see indigenous realities Oh, I love Emily. I love her painting. Let's stop there. But she's fascinating because this is Greta More. She's an art historian uh, who did a lot of work on uh, on Carr, and she did it with the native aspect in view. She is a really wonderful study, and she found out really that studying Carr's life, that basically she was apolitical. She had no real interest in politics at all, and so she misses all this terrible stuff that's happening, no treaties and, and oppression and all that. She goes – this goes right by it. But she very much loves and appreciates Native people. She had First Nations friends, but she was apolitical, and there are pe many people in the world that are like that, and she was. So I found that intriguing, um, and of course her – but she was empathetic. She was, but she didn't. She was a very uh, complex woman, um, and it just didn't translate into a political view at all. So her perspective was an artistic perspective and an apolitical perspective. Yes, like she, she for example, is in Haida Gawaii, and um, dealing with members of the Kelly family, Haida, and uh, knows apparently nothing about Peter Kelly, who was leading the struggle for treaties in BC in the 18, in the nineteen twenties. She's totally oblivious. She's with family members. It didn't come up. It wasn't her concern. So why? Uh, well, Greta Mori does a wonderful job, and uh, I was able to uh, really take a good deal of that. I owe a great deal to her for that chapter. But also did other work as well, and uh, I liked. Uh, I, of course, Emily is wonderful, the female uh, representative in the in the book. Uh, there's several others. Kathleen Coburn actually would be my 
wonderful, wonderful woman, professor of English at Victoria College. She had a, a genuine love of First Nations people and championed them in the 1940s. And uh, she had a cottage near Perry Island, a Jibri community up near Perry Sound. Uh, she, she is she's great. Uh, Kathleen got so concerned about the treatment of First Nations. This is the early 40s. That conference, you see, didn't really go anywhere because of the war. and It was sort of forgotten. Kathleen's very concerned about First Nations and the way they're being treated as, as 10th class citizens and all. So she writes some letters and uh, has a friend at uh, McGill. And uh, she asks her, please, to check uh, with several people in the McGill community in Montreal about... Um, Who's concerned about First Nations? And um, one of the people, Eileen Ross is her name, early sociologist. Eileen contacts John Humphreys and uh, asks him about the First Nations. This is 1943. And we know John Humphreys because he was one of the the craftsmen of the uh, International Declaration of Human Rights. Oh, Patrice, we're a tag team wrestling team. This is great. (laughs) (laughs) Because... John replied, and this is in a letter I found at Victoria College in the Kathleen Copeland's correspondence. This is why archives are absolutely vital. Eileen reports to Kathleen that John says, oh, he's interested, but he knows nothing about the topic, nothing about Indians. You mentioned Montreal. You mentioned Quebec. Were Indigenous people seen differently in Quebec? than in the rest of Canada. Uh, Yes, they are, because there's the history of Quebec that comes in there. The intimacy is is long and extended in contrast with English-speaking Canada. And it's it's hard. There are some intermarriages in the early period. Quebec genealogists, they love to make these connections. In the old days, though, they didn't. There's an attitude change, and I'll tell you what I think it is. At first, French Canadians want them to join their society, and all that's true, but not, not terrific pressure. What becomes awkward is in the late 19th century and early 20th century with race theory, the idea that First Nations are inferior. Therefore, there were some intermarriages. Therefore, French Canadians are inferior. And this is also exaggerated greatly by enemies of French Canada, if we want to say it that way, who claim that the French Canadians are inferior because they're part Indian. And so this is ugly. This is terrible. But in terms of the intellectuals in Quebec, did they was their perspective on the indigenous realities any different from English Canada? I don't think it t- t- terribly so. I mean, they, you know, the difference is, yes, they want the First Nations to become Catholic and um, and uh, use French as their language. I mean, this is this is Canada's dilemma transferred onto the indigenous population. Um, so, uh, but I, I can't really come through with a big. Uh, but there is, uh, I, I don't know. There as from come. Coming from the situation with the English, there is perhaps certain areas sympathy uh, for the First Nation, more so than English-speaking Canada, where it's just assumed that the land is ours and let's take it. Um, I try my best, but that's why biography. You don't. If I'm doing a biography, you're not expecting me to come up with the answers for the for the, for the universe. Uh, a biography, I can do it with one person, Jacques Rousseau. He was an ethnobotanist, and he's a whole chapter. A, large part of a chapter. He was my MA thesis supervisor, so I had personal contact with him. And he defended the Indians. And, and was, he learned, oh, he traveled to northern Quebec six or seven times, and he was became as much as one could as an academic, one of them. And uh, I, I found him outstanding. And he's the one, uh, if you're talking to me about Quebec, he's the one I keep in my mind all the time. And he, he felt it was an absolute, his championing of the First Nations at this point, it was an uphill struggle all the way. That's what makes your book so interesting, Don. Is that you in your in your succeeding chapters, you you capture characters and you you, you sort of peel away how they are, their views on indigenous peoples evolve, and, and how they mature in their perspectives. And that's what that's what makes the the reading, I think, particularly captivating. Whether it's uh, Emily Carr or Jacques Rousseau, um, there is an awareness, a blossoming of awareness that makes 
each one of your each and every one of your chapters so very interesting. I like that, Patrice. Lots of legal awareness, but not in all cases. Didn't work with Duncan Campbell Scott. <laughs> it didn't work with all cases. Absolutely not. That's it, because that's our old enemy, generalization. Exactly. Now, you mentioned in the book that, and you, you bring this back, um, that Man in His World, the Expo 67 in Montreal, had a Canadian Indian pavilion. Um is there an explanation for that? I mean, it, it strikes me as extremely progressive for the period. Um, how did it happen? Well, it was uh, it's sort of a, in mid-60s, there's a lot of goodwill. But the people are assimilationists, but they want the First Nations to become – the idea is you become citizens, you, you give up reserves, the Indian Act, all this stuff, and you become part of the larger society. This is the goal. And so there's a, a certain – desire for First Nations to have a voice. There's no question of that. And they, they gave control of the building to the First Nations, which was fantastic. And I remember it well, Patrice, that's part of my awakening. You were talking about awakenings. Yes. I, I was there. Can you tell us about uh, the Canadian Indian Pavilion at Expo 67? What do you remember about it? Well, it's a, it's, it's a declaration of what's actually happening, what the education system is doing. It's trying to make them into brown white people. It's it's the the, the control of the Indian agents was still there, and, and that there's violent, just whole, totally rejected. They want to have their own voice, and it, it, it's not only the voice; it's the art. There's fantastic First Nations art, Indigenous art, and Olive Dickinson, the great Métis historian of Canada, really without without any competitor in my opinion in the indigenous history field, Olive said that was a turning point. And I, I certainly agree. It certainly was for me personally. Well, tell us about how did this, is this what convinced you to start looking at the, uh, the rapport between uh, Canada and, and indigenous Canada? No, because in the 60s, my passion was actually French-English relations. And that's why I went, I, I was very lucky to get a job at Expo. And that's why I was, I learned to speak French really at Expo. And, um, I, at the Indian Pavilion, that was an add-on, but it wasn't my main interest. But after Expo in 68, I wanted to have another chance to work at my French, which still has great room for improvement. And so I did my master's at Laval. And when I went to Laval, I had a wonderful thesis uh, supervisor, Pierre Savard. And Pierre was a his, his grandmother was Huron. He didn't do indigenous history. So Pierre said, well, listen, Jacques Rousseau, he's in the Centre d'Etudes Nordique. He's, he's here on campus, and I can arrange a private seminar with him. That's where I'm, I'm caught. This was Jacques Rousseau. We had uh, at the Pavillon Le Mieux, every, every couple of weeks, we'd have a, a meeting and a seminar, and I learned all kinds of things. That's where I was so lucky, too, because he died the year after I, I got my MA, 1970. So I was one of his last students. So he, he's the reason. Your book is, is again, your book describes people um, who are discovering Indigenous realities, just like you did, uh, which I think gives gives your book uh, a personal touch that that, that drives the the, um, the narrative. Um, I want to fast forward uh, to to the to, to now. Um, the this is the fifth anniversary of the Truth and Reconciliation Report. Uh, we've also had. Uh, the final report of the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. Um, a lot of people say that these things cost a lot of money. Do you think these things, these studies, these reports, the activities that went into them, do they pay off? Do they, how do they contribute to our awareness of indigenous realities? Patrice, you're talking like a political scientist. <laughs> I don't, I can't, I can't tell you much about today. I can just tell you one 
person. I think it's terrific because it raises awareness. And I'm not sure what exactly all this means, but I sure know people in my circle who are t- suddenly unbelievable the momentum that this has caused. And uh, oh, it just it's so it just warms the cockles of my heart because I don't. There's all kinds of opinions, all kinds of theories and whatnot. But the important thing is that these are these are the original peoples of Canada, the indigenous peoples. I mean, it's, it's, and, and they were totally ignored. And that's what I could not understand. Ever since I, well, Jacques Rousseau, and then going back to Toronto, and I studied the, the Sasaga First Nations. And, and I just can't understand why are these people ignored and, so, and treated so disparagingly. It didn't make sense. And now it's quite different. And in fact, it's just overpowering. And people now are beginning to see Canadian history through the Indigenous lens. And in some cases, just forgetting everything else. Uh, I'm sorry. That, I don't like talking about the present like that. But I'm, I'm, I did it. <laughs> it's a castle of the bag. And so I just, I just want ballots. I want the Indigenous situation to be there. And I just love this the declaration of, of territory. So it just reminds us that we're not the first. That was the curse of uh, early West in the early 20th century. We were the first. This land was ours. And in central count as well. Where do you think that studies should go in the future in terms of understanding the relationship between mainstream Canada, I'll call it that, mainstream Canada and Indigenous Canada. If you were this, if you were to set the agenda for research for, let's say, the next 10, 15 years, what, do you, what would be your wish? What, what do you think we need to know about the past in terms of, of Canadian slash Indigenous relations? Well, the problem is Indigenous societies are oral, and that makes it really rough. So, if you're talking to me, and I'm a documentary historian, I think that what is needed is, from my vantage point, again, history is like we're all looking at the same mountain, but from different vantage points. And men, women, rich, poor, everything, all, all different factors come in. But saying just as one person, what I think is is more work on archives and archives. And, and I know that it's, it's very tough, but that, yes, archives, oral and written, there's still tremendous areas to explore. And what's what's going to happen now? With uh, students aren't taught handwriting anymore. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm scared. I really am. Well, how are we going to pull this off? <laughs> you mean you're concerned that they will not they won't be able to read cursive writing? Is that what you're you're worried about? That, that I mean, I don't see how you can understand Edgerton Rice unless you read his, read his humongous number of letters, and they're 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 handwritten at least in the early period. No, and there are other people as well, but also languages. I mean, you you've got. Uh, You've got to know French and English um, for the Eastern, particularly, but also for the West, the missionaries and all. I mean, it's just there's a lot. There's lots more to do, and now with this new mind, this new attitude, it's going to open doors. Now, for example, I'll be quite honest with you. In my, I did two books on Mississauga First Nations, and I never understood the importance of these dotums. These are, are symbols that each of the, the First Nations leaders had, uh, the uh, Mississauga Ojibwe leaders. I didn't understand. But now there's a new book, Bohacker, her new book on dotums. I'm, I, this, is big, this is great. This gives me a new light to look at the past in when I'm looking at the Mississauga in your area, Patrice, straight in their traditional territory. So it, it's exciting. Don, I want to ask you the classic Champlain Society question. Uh, you've written many books in your career, and they're always extremely well-researched. Um, seen but not seen uh, has no less than 120 pages of footnotes. So I have to ask you uh, this question. What new sources did you use? 
and you have to tell us about your clipping collection. <laughs> well, I'm a pretty bizarre guy. I started clipping current events in grade 10. My teacher, I thank in my, in my book, my teacher's still living. We met every year for a number of years now. Anyways, he started, I started these clippings, and there was world affairs. Then when I shifted into Canada, became Canadian material, and then history, indigenous history. It just In the end, it was just indigenous history. And I collected about 150 boxes, which are now at the University of Calgary Archives. And I'm sorry, folks, they're all closed because of COVID. One day they will reopen. Good. That's hope. <laughs> that's good. So it's it's so frustrating because all this, I can't, I can, I can come back with answers and stuff, but I've got the actual records. It's not just a footnote. I've got the footnote is in paper. It's in the archives. So, I mean, what I did was it just, it became all consuming. Uh, originally, I was going to do a book. I taught Canadian history 35 years at the University of Calgary. I was going to sum it all up, French, English, and Aboriginal, and Canada. I couldn't do it. I eventually narrowed it down to really uh, images of First Nations, 1840s to the present. So that, because it's so huge, it's so humongous, the literature is so great. So great, but um, I, I I've had a good time. I've have, and I, I've met a lot of people. Do a lot of going to communities and uh, talking, interviewing people, uh, indigenous and. But of course, my book is non-indigenous. So I cover that turf a little bit more. But um, it's it's been a good. It's, it's been a great life. It really has, and it started in high school. I, I, I have to say, I was a clipper for a long, long time myself. Nowhere near as uh, as, as copious as, as as you were, but. Uh, the internet intervened, and I gradually lost the habit. Don, I want to thank you for Seen But Not Seen. Thanks for your kind comments, Patrice. That was Donald B. Smith, the author of Seen But Not Seen, Influential Canadians and the First Nations from the 1840s to Today, published by the University of Toronto Press. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Please visit our website at champlainsociety.ca where you'll find more about what the Society does. There's even a place to become a member and a sustainer of the Society if you like these conversations with historians about Canada's past. Please let people know how much you like these dialogues by using whatever social media you use. We'd be really proud of your support. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who are making an investment in the hard work of bringing to life original documents in Canadian history. Thank you. Thanks also to the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, the University of British Columbia Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Patrice Dutzil. This interview was recorded in the middle of a pandemic on January 22nd, 2021 by Jessica Schmidt. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time.